0: Hey, welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad that you are here. Uh, if, especially if this is your first time, uh, you picked a great day to come check us out. We're starting a brand new series today called Who Is This Man? And it's not because we got robbed this week and we have footage and we are really on the lookout. That has happened before, but that's not what this series is about. It's, it's, it's about a series about Jesus. It's leading up to Easter. And uh, we, we feel like Easter is kind of a big, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a big deal in the, in the life of a church. And every, every year... Um, I, I try and not allow Easter to sneak up on me. In, in other words, I try and prepare myself personally uh, through either like reading through some of the gospel stories of Jesus or there's a book I love to read called um, The Scandalous Beauty by Thomas Schmidt. Um, and both of them are kind of like preparation because I want to be like, I want to be prepared for something. Or when it, if I'm going on a trip somewhere, um, I want to read Scotland for Dummies or I want to read some sort of a book about this place. So when I get there, I appreciate it more. Okay with that in mind, that's what this series is about. It's going to lead us up to Easter. It's going to be looking at and focusing our attention on the person of Jesus so that when we celebrate Easter, it means a little bit more. So hopefully you're a part of that journey with us. And uh, so I want to start today by talking about something not related to Easter, um, something a little bit different in that way. But there's a uh, we did uh, recently, this last Friday, so not two days ago, but like nine days ago, whatever, we did what's called Family Movie Night. And our strategy on Family Movie Nights are we can't afford... To like show real movies like from the you know well legally we can't do that because we're not a theater anymore and, and secondly it just costs it would cost too much to do that so we wait and but we also know that if you let a movie get on Netflix. Uh, for too long your kids have already seen it so for us to be like hey who wants to come watch finding dory they're like we're out we already own it or we already watched it or they're so sick of finding dory whatever so there's like this window brief window of time where if a movie comes out on tuesday uh, we can show it on friday and people kids are still like that's cool i want to see it that's our strategy just so you know we're giving out our strategy Coco came out recently, uh, a movie based on the Mexican holiday of Dia de los Muertos, and it's, uh, it's Pixar. I hadn't even seen the movie, and I was like, we should do this one. It comes out on Tuesday. And my wife was like, have you seen it? I'm like, nah, but it's Pixar. It's probably all right. And uh, turns out it was. It's a great flick. The premise of the movie is this. Um. What? And, and there, it, it's 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 a movie based on an actual holiday. You should probably Wikipedia the actual holiday, which I did this week. Uh, but uh, the idea of the movie is essentially remember your ancestors because there's this afterlife, this alternative like universe where they exist. And on one day, they you set out their picture, and as long as you remember them, they are able to walk over the bridge of some sort of world into our world and then be with the family one more time. It's a really good. Heritage. It sounds like weird and scary, and it's it's full like. Like in the actual holiday too, in, in Mexico, it's it's got skulls everywhere, but then like really cool neon colors. It's like this like identity crisis or this dual personality where you're like, is it dark or is it awesome? Which one is this? You know, it's like this cool. Anyways, um, it's it's both of those things. And uh, in the holiday in, in the story, if a family member forgets to put out the photo. Um, as an accident, or more generally, if they just begin to, if those members uh, die off and somebody is forgotten, then they they cease to exist in this alternative universe as well. They just disappear. And Pixar doesn't tell us where they go because it's a kid's movie and they're not supposed to do that stuff. So, uh, but that's the idea is as long as you can remember those who have died, so that's the, you know, so that they can come back and and be a part of the family. It's a big pro-family type thing, which we're all, you know, it's always a good thing to be about. All right. Even the theme song is called Remember Me, and I was going to like write it down and read some of the lyrics, but then I found myself singing it as I was reading it, and I thought, I'm not going to sing in front of these people because they definitely will remember that, and that'll be painful, so I'm, I'm going to avoid that. But the reason that the tension is felt, the reason that the movie kicks off in this way and that uh, we can watch this, or it's, it's, it's a strong enough premise to build an entire movie on, like hundreds of millions of dollars invested in, or I don't know how many millions of dollars, invested in the making of this movie, the reason it's, it's able to be built upon is because we all have felt that before. We know that normally when somebody dies, the impact on the world immediately begins to recede. It's as if you took a rock and you threw it in the Columbia River and there's a big giant splash and then there are ripples. And slowly over time, the bigger ripples turn into medium-sized ripples and the medium-sized ripples turn into smaller ripples. And eventually it gets all just down into where there's nothing. So when somebody dies, there's a, usually a big giant splash. There's a big deal made about it. There's a funeral. Sometimes it's televised like the Billy Graham thing. Um, sometimes it, it, it's just, you know, everybody kind of comes together, especially when it's a tragic one. Then they start renting out bigger facilities and, and it becomes this big giant splash and then it recedes. and, and uh, we, we know that this happens. Like it starts off like this and it slowly goes down and it gets to the point where you're like, oh, did that, who, who is that? Or did that happen? Or or you watched the Oscars last weekend and then do that in memoriam thing, right? And they show all of these famous actors and actresses uh, who, have, who have passed away this last year. And you find yourself saying, like I, I find myself saying, um, was that this year? They died this year? That's unbelievable. It feels like so long ago. And or we find ourselves saying, I don't even know who that is, right? Um, apparently, they were famous enough that the Academy thought that they should get some FaceTime, but I don't know who that is. Now, I could base that on the fact that I'm not really that much of a, a, a movie guy, but for some people, it's like we just realize they've, they've, oh, they used to be big back in the 50s, back in the 60s, back in the whatevers. They used to be big, but now they're not. Why? Because the natural progression for everybody is that when you die, it's like this slow inverse triangle into nothing. Now, we don't like that feeling. We're not, um, that's not something that appeals to us. It's a fact of life for us. You were reminded of that in philosophy. Class when you took it uh, back at CBC or whatever college that you went to, remember that someday nobody will remember you. Right? That was like, oh yeah. And so we fight against that. We want to be sort of remembered. We don't even know why, but like for some reason, because I'm not going to be around to enjoy it. But I want my legacy to extend past myself. That's why uh, we have kids. That's why we we pass ourselves along through our kids. That's why um, sometimes you'll hear people donate lots of money to put their name on something. If I give a certain amount of money, will you put my name on this building? If I, if I donate a bunch of money, if I'm a good enough person, will you put my name on this park? Right? We, 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 we uh, memorialize people either through them buying it off or just them being a generally good person um, by putting their names on things. Hospitals, parks, streets, residential towers in New York City with prominently gold interiors. Somehow we want our name to live on beyond just us. And ironically, um, we will then later on frequent these parks and may or may not know that they were named after a person. We just thought it was Howard Amon Park because of geography. We had no idea who he was. I'm sure he was a great person. Here's what I do know. My kids love his park more than Lawrence Scott, whoever that was, right? <laughs> so for judging people based on their parks... Howard Eamon's got it, the Monopoly on the spot on it, right? And I'm sure, listen, I'm sure there's a commemorative plaque somewhere in the park that you're like, well, you could go and find out more about him. I probably could. I'm busy. But anyway, I'm not I'm being insensitive. I'm, I'm making a joke passive. But save your emails. Anyways, chris.gale at gmail.com. Again, if you want to send those there, that's, that's where they go all I mean by all of that is slowly the ripples begin to fade and I'm not treading any new ground there. We know that slowly the ripples begin to fade and we throw a rock in and then it goes. And yet, um, and that, and that is true for almost every single human being. And yet when you look at the life of Jesus, what you find is what I'm calling the inverse effect, the inverse effect Um, Jesus' impact was greater 100 years after his death than it was at the point of his death, and 500 years after that, and 1,000 years after that. It has gone from being almost nothing. I mean, really, Jerusalem was kind of like this backwater town, and yeah, he had kind of been around for three years and probably had a significant number of followers. In light of like the global or even the national scene, he was a nobody, it was a nobody, his death meant nothing. It was violent, but it was not on the front page paper. And after he died... There was no giant funeral. They did not parade his body down the Via Dolorosa. One guy went to Pilate, asked for a favor to be able to take his body and bury him in in a very uh, non-public setting. And his disciples found themselves huddled in a room afterwards. This is the story. This is the grand story about the great disciples. This is one of the reasons I really think the Bible is true, because these disciples wrote about it and you would never write about yourself in this way? Where did they find themselves after Jesus died? Not waiting outside his tomb, counting down from 10. They found themselves locked in a house, scared for their lives, wondering what happened, what's next, and why did we back the wrong horse, and what are we going to do with all of this? Listen, the moment somebody great dies in our culture today, we think, well, you know, We'll never forget the great Abraham Lincoln. We'll never forget Billy Graham. We'll never forget George Washington. In fact, we should name a street after him. We should name a way after him. It's fairly apparent in those immediate moments that their legacy will outlast a majority of humanity. There are people in this world who have lived such significant lives and some, uh, such significant efforts to move forward human consciousness or national identity or, or, such, uh, or whatever. Um, and in those moments we go, their legacy will last beyond their life. And that's definitely true. And then there are those people, we, we've attended those funerals, where it seems like their legacy may be forgotten fairly soon, sooner than, than you'd hoped. If you've ever attended a funeral where you're looking around, and it's like five minutes to go time, and you're like, is anybody else coming? Did they forget the time? I mean, is this all an entire life, 75, 85, 95 years, and this is, this is kind of the legacy that they leave? Listen, as sad as those and awkward as those moments are, when Jesus died, his tiny failed movement appeared and felt a lot more like that than it did. Like some great man has just died. We don't realize it because as I'm going to walk through, we have, we experienced some of the impacts. When I say the name Jesus, when I said, who is this man? It's going to be a series on Jesus. Nobody in this room, whether you're an Laker or not thought, who are you talking about? Jesus, what? Everybody knows that. Everybody has that feeling. Everybody, so, but, and we don't know what it would feel like to put ourselves in that position like the disciples, like in the moments and the days immediately after his death on the cross. It, it, it would feel like another, just another nobody has died and we have. there is no legacy beyond this. Nobody, listen, nobody thought it would become the thing that it was or that it is. Nobody gave him that much credit. This was just another rebellious person who got some sort of authority complex and, and decided to go up against Rome and got crushed like all the others did. And we will, they, we will forget his name, or they, this is probably with the Roman authorities. Crush it, solve the problem. Nobody will remember who that is 10 years from now. There's going to be another person. There's going to be another Jesus of Nazareth, and we'll crush him too. Why? Because we're Rome. And the Roman Empire will exist forever upon ever or whatever, and we all know how that worked out. But you always get the feeling that they slowly scattered away. And the question is, why did they leave? Because they thought it was over because they realized we backed the wrong dog in the fight. It is really hard for us to put ourselves in that mentality of, because we know too much about it, we have this, it's called like a present bias that we carry into being unable to really feel um, the end, the, 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 uh, the, the reality that, that this was n- no longer an option, that there really was no legacy to be left. However, a couple of years ago, they unearthed a Nazareth high yearbook, and you'll never believe what happened with this. This is amazing. Check this out. Um, he was actually designated most likely to posthumously succeed in life. So I guess there was a few people who, who thought of, of this in, in that way. But here's this here's this also very unique as I show you this picture um, Jesus eventually became history's most familiar special we have no idea actually what he looked like but I just showed you a photoshop yearbook photo of what we generally think of when we look at Jesus and I didn't have to explain that he's the one in the middle now I know the names associated beneath but you didn't even need to look there did you I didn't be like hey guys I'm talking about the middle one you're like yeah no we get it thanks and when I sent this idea to Chris on like Wednesday, I was like, "Hey, I'm thinking about doing this like yearbook photo thing. Could you make me, could you photoshop me a, a thing, on, you know, that has him most likely to posthumously succeed." I didn't say, "And here's a photo to use." He picked this one out and knew exactly what I was going for. And by the way, came up with the other two on the other side, that's not even me. That's him, so I have to pass him the credit on this. Listen, the irony of that. The irony of uh, of the fact that um, we we know this, that we we see this, and we're like, yeah, we we get it. It's it's significant how much his life has had an inverse effect on us. Where his the ripples should have died long ago, and yet it still felt and felt in impressive ways even today. I'm gonna walk through a couple of the ways in which. In our even our uh, our secular society, um, where we are, are feeling the effects of Jesus or people who have been associated with Jesus, that we may not even we, like we we're all about like the secular environment, what you do in your own time, and, and what you bring into the public uh, sphere is is you. But keep that separate from what you believe. And and, and I, I get it, I understand all that. But listen, it's it's not as clean cut as that. Throughout history, powerful regimes have often tried to establish their importance by dating the calendar around an existence. Significant people who've thought, you know what, here's how I'll leave my legacy. I'm going to change the entire calendar up so that when they reference it, they reference it based on when I came to power. So Julius Caesar comes on the scene, forms an edict in 46 BC that says, um, when... uh, the, the new calendar is going to be called the Julian calendar. It's going to be based on when I came to power so that from here on out, every ruler who's like, well, I came into power in 46 uh, BC or, or 2 BC or whatever, it's going to be based on, and they wouldn't use BC because that's the new calendar, but it's going to be based on when Julius was in power. That was, it's, a, it's a very strong-arming way of asserting my own personal authority and making it about me. And then a few years later, actually quite a few years later, it was off by a fraction of percent. They forgot to factor in some things about the leap year. So in 1582, the Gregorian calendar is introduced in 1582 AD by a pope named Pope Gregory. That's why we get Gregory or the, the Gregorian calendar. It's named after a person who was in authority at that time, at that time a religious authority, the Pope of the Catholic Church. But we're going to introduce a calendar that scientifically is right and it's an advancement forward. It corrects an error that was unforeseen previously. And when we do it, we're going to do it. In such, this is such a significant statement. Let's not name it after anybody but, uh, but, but a, a Pope in this position of authority. This is the Gregorian calendar. And yet, listen, no matter what these calendars go off of, now, if you, uh, when you got on your phone this morning and checked to see if it had moved forward an hour, or when you buy a plane ticket to go somewhere, or when you do a credit card or whatever, and there's a little timestamp date associated to it, it's going to say 2018. 2018 what? Years. 2018 years from what? From the generally established, although they probably got it wrong by a couple of years, birth of Christ. It is. It has become the hinge point of history. It is the way the world operates. And I know there's arguments about the whole before Christ and anno domini, which means in the years of our Lord. And now we do CBE, and now we do this, and we now. But for in in general, it is the central point. It is the point at which everybody points back to and says it's either before that event or after that event, before that event or after that event. What event? The hinge point in history, the birth of Christ. Even. Our, in our modern day calendar, this, uh, the, the celebration of a new year. New Year's Day, January 1st, every single year, comes what? Eight days after Christmas 25th, 26th, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, and then the very first day, the first day of the brand new year, eight days after Christmas. Why? Because in the Jewish tradition, a child who was born in that tradition would be taken to the temple on the eighth day, circumcised, and given a name. They would not name their child for eight days. Why? A lot of times, kids would die prior to that. We want to make sure that this child's going to live. And once they live, then we will give them a name. So in this tradition, it was on the eighth day is when the name of Jesus came into this world, which then brings us into a brand new light. So the church early on goes, it's a new year. It's a new day. Let's celebrate the new Day by celebrating the entrances of Jesus's name into our universe. I mean, it's significant. Listen, you cannot get away from this guy. This guy, whether you're religious or not, so much of how you live and all in the world that you live in has been affected by either Jesus himself or people who have fallen in love with him or patterned their lifestyle after him. I want to include a couple of more in the field of mental health. If patients have grandiose identity disorders, it is Jesus that they identify themselves as. It's a a messianic complex, as I am Jesus. It is in the name of Jesus that desperate people pray, that grateful people worship, and angry people swear. And from christenings, to weddings, to hospice centers, to funeral parlors, it is in Jesus' name that people are hatched, matched, patched, and dispatched you cannot get away from this guy. From the dark ages to postmodernity, he is the man who will not go away. He is the glitter of modern day religious stuff. If you've ever tried to get glitter out of anything, it does not happen. <laughs> That's what's happening. He never married, but his treatment of women led to the formation of a community that was so pro-women in the middle of a world that was obviously not, that they would join it in record numbers. The church community, early church community, was so pro-women, so pro-slave, so, um, so pro-disenfranchised people that most most uh, honorable men would look at and be like, that's not really for me. If I engage in that kind of a community, it will be a draw away from my honor and, and away from the respect of my peers. And yet, these people flocked towards people. like mean. Why? Because he treated them with dignity his entire life, his entire ministry as well. His treatment of children felt like something out of left field in his culture. He never wrote a book. And yet, he was not anti-learning or anti-intelligence when asked one day what the most important rule was. Here's his response, Luke chapter 10, verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And as he quotes this, he's pulling from this Deuteronomy 6 verse, which would be like the central verse. It would be in our modern day times um, when, when a kid grows up in sort of a religious, religious community, like John 3.16 is like the go-to for God to love the world. He gave, you know Everybody remember that, even if you only went to like one VBS day, right? Skipped all the rest because I got kicked out. I was too bad of a kid. But I did go to one day and I learned John 3.16. In this context, in the Jewish sort of upbringing the Deuteronomy chapter 6 passage was known as the Shema Hear O Israel the, uh, the Lord your God is one uh, and love the Lord your God with all your heart soul strength and mind this would be the verse that everybody would know Jesus grabs that verse appropriates it in this sense but then adds at the very end and with all your mind in other words do not leave your mind at the door with this and he was so pro this in fact Um, A lot of times the church has been given this bad rap as anti-intellectual, anti-science, anti-this, anti, anti well, you know, there are some things that you have to kind of like disbelieve in order to believe what you believe here. So check your brain at the door, come to church. We take all of this at face value. We know exactly what this is saying without any, you know, we don't have to worry about what other people have opinions on it. You can read it for yourself. And that's just not really how the historical church has treated intellectualism. Based on Jesus saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, the church and the believers of Jesus have used their minds in significant ways to advance it. If Listen, if God is a God of order, then we should be able to use the, the rational, the rational uh, sentience that he has given us to be able to understand that order. Therefore, we are going to be not anti-science, but leading the way in science, in the dark ages, when, when intellectualism was kind of, uh, you know, don't worry, we got it covered, you can trust us what we say, when it was being destroyed in, in systematic fashion, small religious communities would preserve what insights remained. They gave rise to libraries, they gave rise to universities. Most of the universities that were initially started, especially the significant ones, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale, virtually the entire Western system of education and scholarship, would arise because of his followers. Their mottos would be something about solo de gloria or, or uh, only to the glory of God or to, to his glory. There would be significant religious heritage as a result of this. There'd be an advancement of, of world literacy. In the Reformation, Martin Luther would come on the scene and say, you know what? It is a bogus deal that the church would monopolize the reading of the text. In other words, if you want to have anything to do with what God says, come hear me read it. This should be something that has access to everybody. The Catholic Church basically said, well, it's dangerous. This is a tool that is not good in the hands of somebody who doesn't know what it's actually saying and could lead to some and rightfully so this could lead to some dangerous things done in the name of God that really have nothing to do with him so therefore you should just trust us to be able to read it for you and he Martin Luther basically initiated this idea of the priesthood of all believers listen everybody should have access and yeah it's a dangerous tool if you don't know what you're doing so we should train people to know what they're doing It's not then, well, you're right, let's just play it safe and let's not let them have their their toys and and learn how to play. Let's teach them literacy so that they can learn. And by the way, an awesome byproduct is that they have a genuinely good life and a better uh, ability to learn and advance and not have to do this menial labor, but be able to engage their mind in something so that we can advance technology and intellectualism and all of these things. This would be a strong case for world literacy. In fact, this isn't in my notes, but. Sunday school. We, we laugh about Sunday school. Uh, if you grew up in a church, the, the common, like it's almost like this derogatory, uh, yeah, I learned that in Sunday school, right? <laughs> and we all laugh like because it's usually cheesy phonographs and, and stupid stories, and we're doing whatever it takes to earn the gummy bears. That's really the, the point of all of it, right? <clears throat> and yet, when it originally started, it was a very progressive thing. This guy named Robert Rakes decided, you know what? These kids are not getting enough learning. Our public school system is so broken. What if we volunteered our time on a weekend to add an additional level of schooling with, with more one-on-one training? And yeah, it's going to be training towards the, the uh, uh, sort of the theology or training these kids and what the Bible has to say and about a God who loves them. Uh, and, and yet, if they don't learn, they'll never, if they don't learn how to read, they'll never get this stuff. So they, he started this idea of a Sunday school thing is amazing. So pro, so pro-intellect, not anti-science. That's just, to to act as if that's true about this would be to ignore the reality of history. Because of his repeated, Jesus' repeated admonition to do for the least of these. Because when you do it for them, you're also doing it for me. Because of that kind of do for others what what you want done for yourself, but then also do for others even when they don't deserve it. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bring a cup of cold water to those who are thirsty. Provide a meal for those who are hungry. Because when you do it, you never really know who exactly you're entertaining. An idea as a result of all of those teachings slowly emerged that the suffering of every single human individual matters and that those who are able to help ought to do so. The suffering of every individual matters. And if you have the ability to help, you should do so. You ought to do so. That there is a moral obligation when you have been blessed to be a blessing to other people. And as a result of that, hospitals and relief efforts of all kinds emerged from the scene with a foundation not in, I just feel like this is the right thing to do. I feel like this is what Jesus would have me do. I'm going to be the arms and legs of Jesus in this scenario. Humility, which was scorned in the ancient, ancient world, became enshrined in a cross and was eventually championed as a virtue. Humility in, in, a, in a culture where it was not proper to be humble. Listen, um, you don't think of yourself less. You prop it up. You do whatever it takes to impress people. You keep this image. You have these different homes that you can invite people and in, throw these parties. You can build things in your name so that people respect your name. And Jesus is like, I don't give a rip at any of that stuff, You guys. Be good people. People don't like people who are prideful and arrogant. They're attracted to and have an affinity towards those who are humble, who operate in humility. The concept of humility, and we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, the concept of humility was foreign in the world that he comes in. And yet you and I love it. We are the, the people that we respect the most in life have an aura of humility about them, not typically one of pride and arrogance. We can respect their achievements. We can be like, yeah, that's really great, but he's kind of a jerk, but he's definitely full of himself. But I wouldn't want to be that type of a person. I want to be more like somebody who's humble. That's the kind of person I want to marry. That's what I want my kids to be like. We value humility. Why? Not because it was present prior to Jesus. It came about as a result of that. Even in death, we cannot escape the man Jesus. The word cemetery comes from a Greek word meaning sleeping place. Why sleep? Sleep sounds temporary. I know. Because they believe that there was some sort of a resurrection hope, that there's something after this life, after we die. And we don't really know what it is. Nobody's ever done, gone there, come back and told us about it. Not really anyways. There's some people who want to make some money and write some books about it. But, but legitimately, we're not sure exactly what it looks like. But we have a firm belief that Jesus was right when he said that this life is not all there is to this life. And so we're going to name these places sleeping places in the temporary hope that there's something beyond this. And so when you die, in all likelihood, you will be buried in a cemetery. Even if you're not a religious person, you cannot escape the glitter that is Jesus, okay? N.T. Wright wrote about this. What do we know about him is so unlike what we know about anybody else that we are forced to ask, as people evidently at the time did, who then is this? Who does he think he is, and who is he in fact? We've already established that he's everywhere, so what is he? who is he? Who are you? In a world that is so um, about, in our world, uh, allowing, not allowing, watching people tell us and sell us who they are. Every time you flip through Instagram, you're watching people sell you on who they are. Very rarely does it get to the point where we flip the question back on them and, and begin to ask a question, so tell me a little bit about you. And Jesus isn't selling himself in this. And I hope you don't come across as me selling you on him. I'm just looking at it going, look at this. You've not been able to escape us. And I'm trying to pin the points together. But at some point you face up to the question, um, who are you really? Luke chapter four describes this, this. This is not unique to our life or our scenario. It says this, then he went down to Capernaum a town in Galilee. And on the Sabbath, he taught the people. And they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. You say the same things to other people. The way that you say them is different. You speak as if you have a right to do something about it. You speak as if you have a duty. You speak as if you're on a mission to change something. You're not here to affirm what's already going on. You're here to introduce something new. There's something like, you call it this kingdom of heaven. And we don't know what exactly you mean. And you're a little bit ambiguous. Who are you really? Who are you We spend all of our time trying to tell, sell people on who we are. We rarely pause long enough to ask the question, who are you? And when it comes to Jesus, there is not a better question to be asked. Who is this man? What is he about? Which side are you on? These these people would go on to be like, "Um, so tell us, are you about this or are you about this? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or should we, uh, should we not? Are we not really, they're, they're trying to figure out which side, and, and dude, everybody everywhere has done that. Everybody wants Jesus on their side, even if they're not particularly religious, even if they're, they're supposed to be secular institution. Socialism wants Jesus on their side. Jesus is, is the, uh, the archetype of the common worker man, right? Uh, capitalism wants Jesus on his side pacifists want Jesus on their side. Just war proponents want Jesus on their side. Billy Graham and Billy Shakespeare, Sarah Palin and Barack Obama, the NRA and the NPR all want Jesus on their side. Everybody lays a claim to Jesus because he's safe. We may not be religious. And I can even operate under the, uh, under the guise of, of atheism. Or I can choose to believe that I'm an atheist and yet have mad respect for somebody like Jesus who had an, an, an ability to advance human consciousness in a way that is unprecedented, unprecedented in history and felt 2,000 years later. He's incredibly difficult to nail down. It's like nailing Jello to a wall. You ever tried that? It just slips and falls off. And it doesn't work. I tried it last night. Anyways, it doesn't work. H.G. Wells wrote this. A historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. In other words, when I take a big backstep view of history in general, I find a gravitational pull towards this man. And by the way, I'm not even a Christian. And yet I, I, am, oh, I am educated enough to understand that he, I cannot give him a pass. He's one of the most influential men in history. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is what did he leave to grow? Not what did he do with his time here, but what happened as a result of his existence? Did he start men to thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? By this test or by this standard, Jesus stands first. In terms of legacy, in terms of what people did with what they had and what they knew about him, there is nobody even close. Second place is so far off. Now, maybe it was all good timing, right? How do you explain the rise of Christianity? How do you explain the influence of Christ, of Jesus, in the world that we live in? There's a book by a guy named Rodney Stark. He's a a, a historian over at UW. He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and in it, he talks about, he goes through all of the different things as to why it could be, right? Right? It could be because the Roman road system was established, that the Roman Empire developed such uh, an infrastructure of the dissemination of information that had Jesus come on the scene 100 years or 50 years prior, it wouldn't have probably worked out. And yet with this, it kind of did. And the Greek system of the gods was kind of broken. People were kind of like disinterested in it. It had already played out. It was a part of the old regime, part of the Greek empire. Now we're in the Roman empire and they kind of allowed it to stay, but we've kind of have now seen the flaws. So we're kind of receptive and open to something that's new. The death of paganism really was kind of like taking a back seat. It was all about order and Roman order. Stability was down. Anxiety's up. Gullibility is strong. Maybe it was all just dumb luck. Could be. Maybe Jesus was a kind, simple, innocent soul with a good mom and a knack for catchy sayings who showed up at just the right place and just the right time in history. Maybe his place in the world is a remarkable accident. Now, again, we, we pride ourselves on being a church that, of people of all, of all flavors and all personal histories and all sort of perceptions about religion. You are free to believe that. I get it. In fact, a lot of people operate under this premises boy, really advanced individual who, who appeared on the scene at just the right time and his influence in this world um, is probably unrepeatable, um, but it, and, it's, and it's undeniable, um, but perhaps it was just right time, right place, a remarkable accident. And my pushback to you is real quickly, but maybe it isn't, but maybe it isn't, but maybe it isn't. Maybe there's more to this story. Maybe, maybe it's time for you and me to really focus in and ask ourselves the question and wait long enough, pause long enough in life to get an answer. Who is this man? Who was this man? Now, as I close, two specific applications for this. Um, number one is maybe you're part of this church community because uh, you well, somebody invited you and you're here for the very first time and you're still figuring this out. Or you've been around and you have already come in with the... Uh, preconceived ideas of, of who Jesus was and and brent i don 't believe him to the level that you do I mean I think again really um, strong leader uh, very insightful um, trying to pattern my life after some of the positive teachings I pick which ones I like about what he says and leave some of the ones that i don't and that's good enough for me um, my push my uh, Encouragement in, in that scenario, if, if that's you, would be perhaps you've closed the book too early on the person of Jesus. When was the last time you really allowed him to speak for himself? Over and over and over again throughout scripture, we'll, as we'll look at in this series, people had preconceived um, opinions of what the Messiah was supposed to look like. And because of these preconceived ideas. They were not really truly open to allowing Jesus to speak for himself. They wanted to make Jesus the way that he wanted to be. And that's, again, that's why everybody who's claiming him on both sides of the political aisle or whatever aisle always make Jesus out to for who they want him to be instead of allowing him to be who he is. So who is this man? Perhaps this would be a great series to be able to look at and be like, okay, instead of me Already kind of filling in the blanks or filling in the colors about what he's supposed to look like? What if I actually let him speak for himself and discover for once and for all, who is this man? And then for those of us who identify as Christians and we're like, all right, yeah, I'm Christian. And I'm trying to pattern my life after the, you know, how, whatever you say, Brent, the whole idea of I'm trying to, uh, if, uh, if I trust Jesus enough, I'm, I'm patterning my life after what he taught and how he lived. And I'm trying to be more like him. And in, in that scenario, I would say, great. I, I would say, um, are you really fully taking advantage? Are you, are you really understanding who he was? Again, are we settling for less than what he really was? Are we okay with, with not, again, with picking and choosing which ones we choose to believe and, and not believe and not letting him speak for himself? Have we ever let him do the talking? and ask the question, who is this man, and then let him respond? Are we, are we settling for something less? Is there an untapped potential in understanding who he is that could shape and change? And, and really, we don't like that because we don't like the idea of being challenged and changed and forced to change if we're going to live up to the standard, but, but are, are, we, are we open to that? It's kind of like uh, if, you, if you bought, if you, you're like, I'm looking for a car to get me from point A to point B, I'm looking for something that's just really a commuter car working back. That's all I want to do. And you buy a Porsche and you're like, listen, you don't buy a Porsche to go from point A to point B. Why do you buy a Porsche? To go 120 on Taylor Flats Road, to go on highway two and do the weaves and the curves and do all the fun stuff. That's why you should buy a car like that. When you buy it and you live it to less than its potential, nobody looks at you and goes, good job. Good for you. You look at him, you go buy a Toyota, buy a Honda, buy, yeah, buy a Corvette, buy something else. Buy something cheap like a Corvette. And, and, but if you're going to spend the money on a Porsche, let a Porsche be a Porsche. You know what I mean? <clears throat> are we allowing Jesus to speak for himself or have we created this box for him and it's really nice? Have we ever paused long enough to wait for the answer of who is this man? Who is this man? So for the next couple of weeks, we are going to attempt to allow Jesus to speak for himself and to define who exactly he is. And perhaps, perhaps, maybe we will not fall into the trap of thinking, what a remarkable accident, but maybe it's something more. Maybe it's something more. Maybe it's something that actually forces us, influences us to change who we are and how we live. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us over the next couple of weeks as we prepare our hearts or Easter, that we would that the, the picture of Jesus um, would kind of like a, a focusing on a lens, just come into a little bit a, a clear view, uh, a, a lens shift, a, a way of going, Oh, okay, that's that's what that, that's like. Because we, we feel like um, our calling is to live our life in the way that He designed or He talks about it, and in a way that um, He described, but not, not only told us about, but lived and modeled for us, and so. I pray that as that becomes clear, then that would then influence our uh, behavior and our actions and who we are in relation to you. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like and the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.